0: Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support.
1: All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision-making
0: welcome to teeth and titanium episode three this is our july episode oscar how's it going it's good it's a little bit different than it was the previous
1: two months but it looks like we're making progress how's it going down there
0: it's good i think we started this at a good time because we kind of captured end of well not end of pandemic but end of kind of the lockdown for us let's
1: let's say end of canadian pandemic yeah yeah we'll get into more (laughs) of that later i guess oh i
0: forgot to introduce myself oscar you haven't met me before so my name you know me as Wendell, chief resident, but I'd like to introduce myself as Dr. Wendell Mascarenas, oral surgeon. Oh,
1: it's official.
0: (laughs) Well, it's official, but I have to, I have to put a caveat. I'm not board certified.
1: Yeah. You got a couple of little hurdles, but that's not really your fault. Yeah. I'm I'm a
0: non, I'm the first, well, not the first, but I'm one of the Canadian non-board certified oral surgeons, (laughs) not by choice. Yeah.
1: Another thing we can thank the pandemic for.
0: Exactly. So we'll get a little bit more into that later, but Yeah. So as you know, graduate end of June, I've officially moved down to Charlotte. So I'm in the U.S. now.
1: Their opinion of COVID is very different to our opinion is what I would say. Honestly, I just see it through the news, so I can't even imagine it because it is so different than what we're experiencing here or our opinion up here.
0: Yeah. Here it's kind of a disconnect because the numbers don't really match the sentiment. I feel like in Canada, the numbers kind of match the sentiment. Whereas, for example, I was in South Carolina operating the other day and it has the highest per capita growth in COVID in the U.S. And masks aren't mandatory, and all the restaurants are open, and like no one seems to care.
1: That's insane. That's insane. But again, I'll leave my opinion on that. Yeah, exactly.
0: Oh yeah, we we're in, we're no COVID. Yeah, you know, we're anti-COVID on this on this uh, podcast. We don't want to talk about it. So let's break off there and let's jump into some current events. So first off. We have actually some good news in the midst of all of this. So the a exam, which is the U.S. board exam, made an announcement that they're now allowing what it seems like is chief residents to write the first part of their exam in January of their chief year. So traditionally in the American system, you don't need to write the boards to become an oral surgeon or practice as an oral surgeon. It's purely optional. You can be a non-board certified oral surgeon or you can be a board certified oral surgeon. Most people will do the boards for prestige or hospital privileges, academia, or just to advertise kind of marketing on the website. I'm a board certified oral surgeon, but it's not required at all. But you had to write this. The first part was a written and it was kind of like six months after graduation. So if you graduate in June, it's the January after that. So I'd be writing it this January. Then you had to wait a year and you had to do the oral exam a year later. So then you're almost two years out and you're finally become a board certified or surgeon. It was kind of a weird system. Honestly, I think our
1: system is so much better than that. Realistically, the way we have it here.
0: Yeah, they kind of have a weird system through exams. I don't know what you think about it. Yeah,
1: I, I really don't like their system. And again, I wasn't necessarily exposed to it because I never thought I was going to go down to the States. So I didn't even really look into taking the exam. But it's yeah, waiting six months after you're done and then waiting a year after that. That's a long time to, to get board certified. And it's it just I think it's a lot harder to be studying while you start working once you really do start working.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. So what's nice is the change they made is that now in your chief year, you could at least get the written done in January, which is actually great because you won't have hit your peak of studying by then or even your peak knowledge. That'll probably happen like March of your chief year. But it's a nice exam to get out of the way. It's a written exam. It saves you a lot of time, almost a year
1: if you're in the States, uh, to get board certified. So I, th- I think it's a positive change. I think it's a really positive change. And in, to tell you the truth, it's a really positive change. And it almost gets the best of both worlds. The, the complaint about our exam, which there's not that many complaints. The main complaint is that sometimes when you have it in June, you start it starts to take away the second half of your chief year, where you really get into the groove of things, where your operating skills just get so much better. But then you really start to focus on operating. So if you have it in January, You then have that whole second part of your chief year to really just operate, which would be pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. I know, for example, general surgery, is around March, their exams. So they study hard till March and yeah, three months of just bliss of pure operating. I know people like that a lot. And speaking of licensing exams, you know, we've avoided talking about the Canadian licensing exams and what's been going on just because there's been so much drama and so much fatigue about discussing it and just to catch everyone up. Originally, we were supposed to have the both the... NDSC licensing exam and the RCDC fellowship exam in June. They were going to be back to back. Everyone was happy. It was great. And then COVID hits. So both of them kind of canceled and definitely said they'll get back to us. So the NDSC now, the licensing exam, has been officially announced for end of September, September 22nd or 23rd. We're still waiting on the exact date. But everyone was kind of waiting to see what the RCDC would do. Everyone just kind of assumed, oh, they'll probably just delay until September do at the same time. So we got an email this week from the RCDC. And what they've announced is they're not doing a fellowship exam this year. Oh, They've canceled it all together. I know this is breaking news oh, for you. I, know I not didn't aware know of that. <laughs> and what they're doing is they're delaying it till 2021. So probably it'll be at the same time as like next year's applicant pool. Wow. But this is where it gets a little dicey. So what they've offered everyone is a temporary fellowship automatically. And the way this temporary fellowship works is... You just fill out this form, you become a temporary fellow of the RCDC. They said you can add FRCDC, which, by the way, no idea what that stands for. Do you know? I mean, you have it on the end of your business card.
1: I bet. Fellow of the Royal College, and then I stop at that part. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah,
0: and also like the C's in a bracket. I mean, we're probably just—it's like no, it's like you're doing algebra to figure it out. So, (laughs) yeah, I have no idea what it stands for. I just know it means that you're like a fellow of the Royal College. So you can add that to your name, to your business card, to everything. Okay. But then next year, when the exam happens, assuming it happens next year, who knows, Mm -hmm. you lose your temporary fellowship automatically once you write the, or once the exam is released. So it's basically like, it's a legit temporary fellowship. You have it till next year, but you have to write it next year. Otherwise you're no longer a temporary fellow. So I started thinking like, is this a good thing? But I kind of realized it's not because the temporary fellowship doesn't give you anything. You can't get a license with that. You can't practice as an oral surgeon with that. So all you're doing is becoming a temporary fellow. You're adding these initials to your business card. And then what they're doing is they're trying to make it so next year you automatically sign up to write it because you're just used to having it and you don't want to, you know, it'd be weird to change your website to like lose initials or have to reprint business cards. So I think this is kind of like a low-key scam in my opinion. What do you think?
1: I don't even know if I would say low-key scam, but I think they're they're, going to face an issue that they don't realize. At least in my opinion is, so once you have the licensing exam, you have the licensing exam, you're now an oral surgeon. And yeah, most of us didn't even really know what those letters stand for. But before when, like, like when I took the exam last year, I did one exam. It was the licensing exam and it was the fellowship exam and it was one in, it was the exact same exam. And so when I passed both, I was licensed to be an oral surgeon and I was also a fellow as well. Now, having two different exams and one not necessarily being mandatory, the one that is mandatory is your licensing exam because that lets you practice as an oral surgeon in Canada. But the other one isn't mandatory. Why are people going to come back and do it? So like you're saying, it may be a little bit of a scam where you're trying to be tricked into doing it because if not, I don't see the incentive. And I think, I think to tell you the truth, my honest opinion, and maybe it pisses a little people off, is that I think they overestimated their importance by not running the exam at the same time this year. Because now, yeah. if you want to write the fellowship exam, you are waiting a full another year for people like you. Like next year, it won't matter exactly. because it'll be at the same time likely as the license exam. But this year for you guys, you guys are going to have to wait that full other year to write that exam. And I think they overestimated how much people want to write that exam because there is no need right and now. And
0: Residents follow trends. You, you, you're probably best. Your closest residents is probably going to be the resident the year above you and the year below sure. you. And you're going to follow what they did. And if they said, I never wrote the RCDC exam, I've been working all year. No difference. It doesn't affect anything. No one care. No one difference. And the other thing is, I think in oral surgery, it matters more because, you know, we believe in the RCDC. Yeah. We like the fellowship. Yep. We like the networking. We like the people. We like what it stands for. I like being um, a part people of People dedicate it. their time. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And I would love to be part of it. And I plan on writing and I want to be part of it too. But also for us, you know, hospital privileges, you kind of want it. Academia, you kind of want it. But how are you going to convince an orthodontist that's delayed their board exam until September wasn't able to work as an orthodontist or bill as an orthodontist until probably like October, November when the results come out, if they pass, then they're working for six months and you're going to say, hey, by the way, here's thousands of dollars on another exam that will not change anything for you. So I'm worried about the non-oral surgery specialties. That's
1: the biggest issue. You nailed it right there. So for us, it has still some significance because if you want hospital privileges, like if you want to limit your practice to just kind of like our podcast says, Teeth and Titanium, then you're going to be fine, right? You don't want OR time, you'll be okay. But if you want OR time, you're going to need that FRCDC. But yeah, for every other specialty, what do they get out of it? What does ortho get? What does perio get? What's peds get? I don't see the point of it.
0: I agree. So I think the RCDC kind of missed a golden opportunity because when the NDSC delayed till September, if RCDC was like, no, no, we're still doing ours in, uh, in June, we'll do it via Zoom, we'll do it via whatever. Yeah, yeah. Man, everyone would have done it. It would have been great. Even if they kept and it, in I think sept- they would have come across as the heroes for
1: sure. Or even if they kept it in September, in line with the licensing exam, right? Because the yeah. licensing exam can really do whatever they want because they are the ones that allow you to practice as a specialist.
0: Yeah, so. that's true. So, really unfortunate news for the graduating class that that exam got postponed. I think a lot of people were disappointed, but who knows? This thing has changed like dates seven times, so maybe it'll change again. But I'm not, I'm not too sure about that. So that was one big announcement that came out. Another big announcement was that CAOMS is actually going to be having a virtual conference this year. Did you see this on the news blast? Yeah, I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. So in September, I think it's September 30th, they're having a virtual kind of conference or lecture. There might be some stuff on social media. All the details haven't really been released, but I thought that was interesting because obviously the um, annual meeting in June had to be canceled Mm -hmm. and rightly so, but It's going to be their first foray, as far as I'm aware, into a virtual conference. And I think you have to be careful with virtual conferences because, first of all, how much do you charge if you charge at all? How much do you charge for that to your membership? And also, you kind of don't want the virtual conference to be that good because let's say it's the best virtual conference with the best speakers all over the world because they just tune into a Zoom meeting. What's the incentive to then have a real in-person conference that you're after. But
1: so uh, honestly, that dilemma, I don't think it's just with conferences. I think that's with a lot of things that are happening in the world right now. Right. A lot of people are saying, why do I have to have office space? Why don't I just work from home? So that's the debate that's going on in, in a lot of aspects in life right now. Yeah. If your virtual conference is more successful or has better speakers than your real conference, why are you wasting that money? Why are you wasting that logistics? Why are you doing all that to make a real conference? Yeah. yeah.
0: Now, Rally, I think I think the the annual meeting will come back as soon as allowable because it is a huge social event too and a networking event people love to see each other love to catch up it's the best part so i think lecture quality you get lectures easily on a zoom meeting but you can't get the interactivity you can't get people hanging out talking catching up and and you can't have hands-on learning either no no. and like and
1: like yeah like people like you so you went to school in in montreal and i went to school in toronto the time that we knew even if our residencies were busy that we would be able to meet up is at the annual conference
0: exactly Yeah. yeah So I, I think that'll be a one hopefully only a one time thing this year and and we'll be able to meet up in the future. The last item of current events I had kind of a, a funny side bit but
1: do you know the Joe Rogan podcast? Yeah. Have you do you listen to it? Have you ever listened? To like it? I'm not a, like I, I wouldn't say I listen to it consistently but I definitely listen to it on and off. Yes. Okay. Up
0: until this week I'd never listened to it at yep. all and I just listened to kind of half an episode. I don't really get it. It's One of the most popular podcasts ever not really sure a lot of his episodes are like three or four hours i mean if you and i just sat here talking for four hours we would have a great time and all of our listeners would delete this podcast i'd probably delete
1: it yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) you wouldn't even listen back to edit you'd be like no i'm done that was too long so he struck a deal with spotify crazy so obviously our our podcast is available on all, all platforms we don't discriminate he struck a deal with Spotify to have, uh, so they would have exclusive, exclusive rights to his podcast for a hundred million dollars. So I want to ask you, Oscar, I want to give you some facts. We have a very good amount of listeners each week to the show. The stats show over 150 people listen each episode so far. The stats also show about 80% of our listeners are listening through an iPhone, Apple podcast, things like that. Having those stats in mind, how much would Spotify have to pay you to
1: make our podcast exclusively on Spotify? Well, so the, the private answer to you is going to be a lot lower than I'm going to say the, the actual answer here, because in case they're listening, I want them to give me a better offer. <laughs> but no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but trust me, it wouldn't be that high for them to make it, have to make me an offer it would, to be exclusive. Yeah. I guess we're
0: talking like WTEs, wisdom tooth Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. That, like, let's like, say... If you gave me each of us 10 to 20 sets of wisdom teeth, I'd be like, yeah, sure. Let's put it only on Spotify.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. Instantly sell out. No, we have more pride than that, maybe. But Spotify, hit us up. Yeah, anytime. So that's all I have for current events. Let's jump into resident reminder. So for a resident reminder this week, we have a great topic. This is a topic that comes up all the time in residency for junior residents, senior residents, new staff, and it's the management of OKCs, a donogenic
1: And I think when you now, say a good topic, this is a re- a really good topic. Last week we had we had a quick topic. We talked about fever, and it's a little bit drier. This is a good topic that most people will enjoy because it does, it does create some debate about it.
0: Exactly. So let's give you some information first. Just a quick recap. OKC is a donogenic cyst. It's not a tumor. I had the pleasure of in dental school, probably the same with you. We were in dental school when they had transition like, just changed yeah. it to KOT, yeah. so we learned it as OKC, and then they they like really drilled us. It's not OKC; it's KOT. Yeah. So we called it KOT for like <laughs> three or four years, and then I think in in residency at the beginning of residency they switched it back. Exactly. So we've kind of gone back and forth. Most of the veteran surgeons have only ever known OKC and called it the OKC. So it is a cyst, not a tumor. Usually on a pan, you're going to see it as an incidental finding, a uni or a multilocular radiolucency. One thing to notice that kind of gives it away sometimes is when you look at it on a pan, but mostly clinically and on the CT scan, it usually expands anterior posterior, like through the bone marrow. It's not one of the ones that is huge on buccal lingual expansion. Obviously that can happen, but if you see buccal lingual, you're going to usually think ameloblastoma more than OKC, maybe a myxoma. Now, the interesting thing about OKC is they're aggressive. They have a high recurrence rate. If you just do aniculation alone or with curettage this literature shows you can have a 25 to 60 percent recurrence rate. And there are three reasons that are hypothesized for this. The first is that you have a thin lining so it's friable and portions can be left behind mm-hmm. so also you've you probably biopsied a
1: ton of these things would you agree with that would you say it's a tough biopsy to do a hundred percent especially like when and we'll talk but when they get infected the lining gets a little bit thicker so it's easier but if it's a pristine okc yeah you go in here like you try to pick it up and it's like it just kind of slips through your instruments it's just not the most fun thing to biopsy
0: yeah very very difficult another reason is the daughter cysts that occur beyond the visible margin of the lesion. So you think you're seeing the whole cyst and the whole lining, but you have these little daughter cysts that stay behind and they can cause a recurrence. And lastly, this is one that I hadn't thought of right away, but they say some lesions may originate from the oral mucosa and then kind of penetrate the bone. So if you're just only removing the bony component and you don't remove any of the oral mucosa around the lesion, sometimes recurrence yeah. can happen. So I think that's a reason that a lot of people don't really think of. but as far as the management, you know, you see it, you want to get an incisional biopsy. Uh, you want to send it for histopathology. You're going to see your classic cyst lining is perikeratinized, corrugated, wavy. This is like your classic it's gonna be asked. <laughs> histopathology. It's going to be asked. Histopathology, they'll show you the slide. You got you to gotta describe it. You got to define it. This is like guaranteed. And honestly, you know, this is one of the easy ones to recognize. Exactly. Yeah, it's one of the easy ones. This one and uh, what is it? It's adenoid cystic carcinoma. Yeah, they're like- the Swiss cheese, yeah,
1: yeah exactly.
0: Those are the, those are the two favorites that we all love. So, Oscar, why don't you jump into treatment and give me one modality of treatment that can be used for OKC? Because a lot of times the question you ask is, what are the different ways to manage this? And they want the senior resident wants the junior resident to list multiple options.
1: Yeah, and so. Or I guess we'd go from, from most basic, which just like you said, the first thing that we that everyone should be doing is you're doing an digital biopsy. But the most basic way of treating this is just enucleation, right? But you've already mentioned that. So what's the problem with that? That's a super, super high recurrence rate. So yeah, that is the most basic, but you're also going to deal with the highest recurrence rate. So really not really standard of care at all. Another one that people talk about quite a bit, I don't know how much you guys did it in McGill, we didn't do it that much, I would say, is marsupialization slash decompression really more limited to big, bigger lesions, especially, or if you're in the maxilla where you have more porous structures around, it's harder to kind of get the lesion. And then the last, another one that is, is nucleation with peripheral ostectomy. At least for us, this was our kind of standard of care. So I wanted to ask you about this
0: because I think a lot of people do enucleation plus peripheral ostectomy. A lot of people mention, you know, using a dyeing agent like methylene blue or crystal violet to kind of put it in the cavity after you've done your original enucleation. Um, it coats the entire walls blue, for example, and then you take your burr for your profile setting, like a, a round burr. And because everything's stained blue and you have to remove the dye, it kind of shows what you've removed and what you haven't removed.
1: Is this something you guys ever so, did on- or you do? Retaining? Honestly, I think the theory of it or the idea of it is great, but it, we've never did it. To be honest, we never did it at all. Why do you
0: think that is? Because
1: we never did it either. But it sounds really it sounds legit. smart it does. to me. It does.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And honestly. Because let's be real. When we all know you do your nucleation, you go for a prefrosectomy, you are there's no way you're covering 100 percent of that surface it, area. You have no idea what you burned and what you didn't. And like
1: burn. again, we're all here, we've all done it. And you're again, most of the time you're arbitrarily just buzzing things down, right? You have, like you said, you have no idea yeah. where you are. But yeah, uh, obviously, so. I don't mean you're doing things blindly, but again, with that blue, with that blue dye, it's like, why wouldn't we do it? But no, we never, we actually never did do it.
0: Yeah. So a couple other treatments we can do. There's anucleation plus carnoy solution. Oh, I got a this question. Like yeah, I'm going to jump fixation. on that.
1: Like, obviously, that was a lot standard before. Did you guys ever use noise when you were? No. You didn't eh?
0: I'm pretty sure. Well, I guess like the chloroform version is yeah, banned, like the modified carnoy. But then a lot of
1: people use it like the modified yeah. without the chloroform. Never seen it. Never used we it. We used it high for three months in my first year, and then we and then it was like it was done. Like you couldn't get it formulated at all.
0: So, did you stop using it because you couldn't get it, or because people didn't want to use the it? The
1: combination of both, where people were like, people were just using it now because that's what they had learned, but then the modified version really wasn't wasn't didn't make any sense. So then they stopped actually formulating it, and people stopped using it pretty much at the same time.
0: Okay. Yeah. No. So don't have much experience with that. And then another one: enucleation plus cryotherapy with liquid nitrogen. Pretty much all the enucleation plus blank. Are just meant to you're removing the lining and then you're doing something just to try and get rid of the periphery, of those daughter sets that are impregnating the yep. wall. That's what all of them are, you know. Did you guys do that? that cryotherapy. at
1: all? Yeah, we did. No. We never did that either.
0: I don't even think we have. That yeah, option. we don't. I, don't. I don't think we have the. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think we have the option of the liquid nitrogen. To be honest, I, I haven't seen it. We always, I would say we we pretty much did nucleation plus peripheral ophthoectomy. Or what we're going to mention is sometimes you have these you know big recurrences, multiple yeah. areas. And then you got to go to the resection. Yeah, yeah. And with the resection, residents should know that you got to use your resection margins from the original pan and the original margin of the lesion, because you don't know uh, where the daughter, cysts are, or what's remaining. So uh, sometimes, you know, you have these people that have been treated multiple times, three, four times they come back. It's bad. Unfortunately, you have to do a resection and then do some kind of reconstruction afterwards.
1: Yeah. And I think the point that you brought there is good for like younger residents or more junior residents to realize is like you shrink it or you, or you did a biopsy and then you took some out. And then you think oh look it's a little bit smaller you know you should be going to that original margin right so that's that's a very key point there
0: yeah it's something kind of you have to remember now we briefly touched on marsupialization and decompression so the first thing is the large majority of people out there have never done a (laughs) marsupialization marsupialization just so people know is you're opening up into the cyst you're creating a permanent cavity by suturing the cyst lining to the oral mucosa you can then have, you know, metaplasia. Some people say the lining changes to normal mucosa. Some people say you have a permanent cavity. So it helps decompress and shrink over time. I've never
1: seen or done this. Have no, you? never seen or done it either in like the t- entire time training. And like you said, I would say, I would beg to differ. Most people who are listening to your podcast will never have s- see it or do it either. Exactly. They've all done most likely a decompression. Yeah. So
0: decompression is you're just opening into the, the cyst cavity. You're putting like a Penrose tube. I've seen a red rubber tube. I've seen like, you know, nasal cannulas, you know, sometimes a plastic tube. People use that. You're suturing it there permanently. You're getting the person to irrigate twice a day for months, like six Mm -hmm. months, nine months. And then you're taking follow-up imaging to see, is it shrinking over time? So at this point, we want to introduce a new segment to the podcast called Debate Club. So what we do with Debate Club is anytime we're talking about a topic, and this can be randomly over the course of, you know, all our different podcasts. And, you know, there's two kind of schools of thought on something. We like to ask the experts and get their opinion because usually you'll have people that are very prominent in the community, but they actually differ on treatment or issues or things like yeah. that. And it's always nice to hear from people with more experience, you know, you're, you're a new grad, I just graduated and we, we've seen a lot of cases, but we don't have that wisdom. We don't have those years behind us. We haven't seen these people for like long-term follow-up that a lot of other people have. So I think it's good to hear from some people that are more experienced than us. Yeah,
1: and like, the, like you said, we can do the treatment but most of these people we haven't seen for follow-up or we haven't seen for that yeah. five-year follow-up because we're just not there long enough to see it. Yeah. Or we might not be inclined yeah. that day. You
0: don't yeah. know. So first up on Debate Club, I would like to bring on Dr. Ashish Patel from Portland, Oregon, well-known surgeon in the community. And he's going to give us the argument for marsupialization. Ashish, take it
3: away. This is Dr. Ashish Patel. I'm an oral and maxillofacial surgeon in Portland, Oregon. And today, I'd like to talk to you about decompression and marsupialization of large odontogenic keratocysts and why I think this is favorable in many cases. Odontogenic keratocysts, as you know, are locally aggressive cysts, odontogenic cysts that can result in tissue destruction, including hard and soft tissue, bony expansion, dental disease, and have an extremely high rate of recurrence, particularly when removed with just simple nucleation and curettage. The use of decompression or marsupialization, particularly in large adenogenic keratocysts of the posterior maxilla and mandible, are particularly useful for several reasons. One, these large cystic structures oftentimes dehisce into the maxillary sinus and nasal cavity and cause significant destruction of bone alveolus and surrounding dental structures. The use of decompression affords for slow regrowth of the surrounding bony structures and creating a shell of normal appearing bone in order to better delineate the margin. In cases where these cysts are continuous with the maxillary sinus and nasal cavity, it's difficult to determine where the cyst ends and mucosa begins and understanding where the margin of the lesion would be. With decompression, these can decrease in size substantially and be significantly smaller, allowing for more complete removal and then a bony margin to perform your peripheral ostectomy or adjunctive therapy, whether it's liquid nitrogen, cryotherapy or chemical ablation with carnoid solution. Similarly, in the mandible, when these encroach on the inferior alveolar nerve or a significant buccal-lingual cortical expansion with dehiscence, it's difficult to completely enucleate these lesions and perform an adequate peripheral ostectomy with local structures being nearby. In addition, when there's complete loss of bony walls, immediate grafting can pose to be a challenge as there's nothing to contain the graft. After decompression or marsupialization and significant shrinkage and removal several months later, these oftentimes form a very nice bony cavity, which is very easy to access for comprehensive removal, ostectomy, and immediate grafting, which will result in a favorable situation and alveolars for future implantation.
0: All right, that was Ashish Patel. Now for the defense, we have Dr. Nicholas McCool, my former staff at McGill, and he's gonna give his thoughts on why he's actually against marsupialization.
2: Hey, Teeth in Titanium, this is Nicholas McCool from Montreal, Canada. I've been asked to present my opinion and my clinical practice when it comes to the treatment of OKCs, and in particular, the use of marsupialization and the treatment of OKCs. In my hands and in my practice, I don't necessarily favor the use of marsupialization. Although there's really no good clinical studies to demonstrate a superiority of one treatment modality over another, I find that with the daughter cysts that exist with the OKC and the potential to leave those daughter cysts Embedded in the site of the original cyst with the use of marsupialization, this poses quite a difficult retreatment for the patient and for the clinician. I've seen several examples where marsupialization has left the original area affected with many small daughter cysts that have expanded over time, leaving us with really no good option for treatment except resection of that area. Of mandible or maxilla, which of course is a much more morbid surgery. Again, in my practice, I favor the use of a enucleation with peripheral ostectomy of the area, taking good care to avoid vital structures like the inferior alveolar nerve or the sinus. Although there is, of course, a recurrence rate which is significant with this technique, I find that it is less and it has been quoted as less than the recurrence rate that is quoted for marsupialization.
0: All right Oscar now you've heard
1: Ashish you've heard Nick what do you think where do you fall on this debate First of all I don't even want to comment because they're both so talented and so smart so let's get that out first but if you're asking me to pick a <laughs> side
0: No no so I've, we've decided something that on our debate clubs you got to pick a kid. side Okay so, and so and so you have you have And to. so
1: if we are if I am picking a side Actually, you know what? I'm lying. I'm not even going to pick a side because I'm going to tow the fence here. To tell you the truth, we very rarely use- You're exactly copying already exactly. on, the on the first, first one. I buckled so bad. Again, they're both impressive guys, so I don't <laughs> want to do anything wrong. But no, it's because I kind of do agree with both of them. Most of our treatment, I would say, at UFT is that we were doing enucleation with perforostectomy. Most of our cases, but I can't say that we never did a decompression or that we didn't think that there was some value in decompression. That's where I will agree with Ashish too, in the sense that when you have those big cysts, those big OKCs that are in, especially if they're posterior maxilla, or even the big ones in the, in the posterior mandible. When we're taking that incisional biopsy, you take a Penrose or like an ET tube and you decompress for a while. So that's how I would say we did use it that way. But if you ask me the majority of cases, no, it, unfortunately I'm team McCool where it's just straight enucleation and peripheral ostectomy.
0: Yeah, so I have to say at McGill was similar. We did mostly enucleation with a peripheral ostectomy. However, I will say on Team Sheesh, I have seen like these massive ones, especially in the it seems maxilla. Like someone's pulling posterior the line. No, no, I'm going to give, I'm going <laughs> to take <laughs> okay, a sign. Okay, okay. No, no, I told you. I'm not going gonna, gonna to cop out <laughs> okay. like you. Although you kind of went Tima Cool at <laughs> yeah. the end there, but I'm not going to cop out like you. So, you know, especially those large lesions in the posterior maxilla, sometimes they're amenable to marsupialization. And I feel like you're going to tell someone we're going to do this massive, it's not going to do a massive surgery because you're still just going to do an eucalation My worry is that realistically, you're not going to be able to actually do a proper peripheral So you're saying, well, even if you can't do it perfectly, there's still, you know, maybe a 40% chance that it'll still work. So you've saved them from a big surgery. Now with marsupialization, I think it's a total pain in the ass to have this tube in your mouth. You're irrigating twice a day for nine months and it may or may not work and you only find out after nine months. So that's one reason I'm not really a fan of that. But this is what I'm going to say is, I think when it comes down to it, I think I'm going to say that I'm team McCool only because of this reason. So we've just lost Ashish as a future guest. Okay, fine. I'm changing <laughs> my mind. I'm going team Ashish. You no, know, I can't do it. You know, I, I, wanted, I wanted to back my staff and he's going to kill me for this, but I'm going to jump to team Ashish. And this is the reason is that I've never seen a problem with marsupialization, especially I've seen some positive results in young patients with massive lesions, but this is my problem. And, you know, we both want to toe the fence so badly because I kind of agree with Dr. McCool, which is that I haven't been around long enough to know at the five-year follow-up, hated did that marsupialization come back and did it have massive rampant daughters yeah. everywhere, therefore making the fall treatment much more difficult. Yeah. But you put a gun to my head. I'm gonna have to go with Team Ashish. So we're on either side. We're on opposite
1: sides. It's one-one. It's a tie. No, that's good. And you know what? Honestly, and I took your staff, so it's perfect. Now he hates you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But we've kept. But we've kept two potential guests. At least that's the most important thing in these debate clubs. So that was our first episode of debate club. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed hearing from them. And we want to thank Ashish and Nick for taking the time out of their busy schedules to send us in their opinions and putting themselves on the line. You know, a lot of people, you know, that you got to give your opinion and take a stand one way and, and they do that. You can tell by us, we can't even take a stand. We can't even decide. And they're pretty confident in, in what they're doing. So kudos to them.
1: No, that's it's really so nice to take. That, like they are way busier than we are. And for them to take their time out to talk about that, it's great.
0: Awesome. So that concludes the resident reminder section. Before we jump into journal club, there is something we wanted to do as a special kind of thing for this particular episode. We are in July. And what July means is, yes, you know, residents are graduating, people are moving on, but it's also a new time for a lot of new residents. It's it's one of the best times you're an R01 or maybe you're an intern and you've finally done dental school, you're in oral surgery. It's so exciting. And you're so naive still, so you're way too excited. Well, actually, I would say you're not even, okay, you are naive because when you're in R1, and you're used to being like near the top of your class and you got in and you were that like one or two person that got selected. You feel like you're the smartest person 100%. in the world. And then within like a month, you realize you were the dumbest person <laughs> in the room by far and you don't know anything. And it's like a crashing halt down to reality. But we want to welcome all the new interns, all the new residents. And significantly, you have a lot of people that are coming in off their off service years that are now new seniors. Yep. So for you guys you know after you finish your R R2 you've done all this anesthesia ICU stuff and you're you know, now you're a senior. And for us I'd say it's much harder becoming a new senior than a new junior because sure. at least when you're a new junior there's no expectation then you do know any, no expectations. You
1: know what everyone thinks yeah. you're going to be dumb. Show,
0: show up on time, work hard, don't complain yep. and people are going to yep. love you. But when you're a new senior, you're dealing with two things. One you have juniors below you that you have to manage for the first time and not it's not easy for everyone. Everyone has different leadership styles, different juniors, not the easiest thing in the world. Maybe a role that people aren't
1: used to. And then you also have staff above you. And I think that's the first time where, again, weaknesses will show up throughout residency. But when you first come back as seniors, where weaknesses really can be exposed, both from, like you said, above and below. If you have strong juniors, they're expecting to learn from you, right? You you need to teach them things. And if you're not a strong senior, you haven't thought or you haven't put in the time to get the knowledge, you're not going to look great. Same thing. You're going to get pressure from the top. They are going to expect much more from your staff now they're going to expect treatment plans they're going to expect diagnosis we're like okay well, how would you do this case and you need to be ready so i would say being a, coming in as a new senior way more stressful than coming in as a new junior in my opinion
0: yeah i agree so what we want to do is want to put together some tips both for new residents starting in july but also new seniors so let's jump into our first topic for this we're going to talk about textbooks so you know textbooks for new residents and resources for new seniors People will always say, oh, just read this, read that. And what we're not going to do here is tell you, oh, you want to know about this? Just read this whole textbook or read this. Sometimes there are textbooks that you need to read the whole thing of. And we're going to talk about some of those. But sometimes, you know, just read a chapter from this book or an article from this book. That's what we're going to do here. So, Oscar, why don't you give us a recommendation for a textbook that people have to read?
1: I would say that they have to read and more because it just breaks things down so basically for you. I would say surgical approaches to the facial skeleton. Absolutely. You just need to, both as a junior and a senior, it, it helps build your knowledge. Like maybe you're not going to follow things exactly to a T, but you should read that textbook.
0: And I think a common theme is, remember, you'll read the textbooks, you'll learn the way, and then you'll get to uh, the OR with your staff and they might do it a different yep. way. But if you have that fundamental knowledge, you'll understand why they're doing a modification. So surgical approach by Ellis absolutely mandatory. I'm going to jump in next with another obvious one, Breineke for it's important as a new junior, you have to read the first half. It's about clinical exam, how to do a workup, how to assess the face. Absolutely mandatory reading for juniors. And then I would say the second half is for seniors because it's about treatment planning, about actually doing the operation. It's about like, you know, more yeah. things like condylar sag, the different types, what you need to know. And I think everyone should just skip the like middle chapter about model surgery in the middle because let's be real. It's absolutely.
1: Well, actually, yeah, well, actually yeah, like, we shouldn't say this. We, we, had a, there's certain... we, we had a guest on last week that might beg to differ. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. He says model surgery is yeah, he he everything.
1: Yeah. But you know what? He did prove us wrong with he's got that many cases. And to him, that's traditional surgery, which I'm still crazy impressed with how awesome that is.
0: Me too. We got a lot of positive feedback, a lot of messages about uh, Lee McFadden, our previous guest. And I think the overwhelming comments were two things. One was, holy crap, how does he do it that way? And he's doing 200 a year. People are like, that number is absolutely insane. So yeah, Reineke, you got to read. I uh, will say if your program does do model surgery, even for any percentage of your cases, then you have to read that chapter because it teaches you start to finish how to do model surgery. But if you don't do model surgery, just skip that chapter. You're not going to learn anything. Give us another so book, am not.
1: mine's not a book. So th- and this one may be actually, you know what? It's actually tailored to both juniors and seniors kind of as a little cheat. So I think from um, giving a little plug to Amos, I think the Amos OMS Reference Guide, the little small book that you get when you apply as a resident, yeah. I think is an awesome book. Like as a junior, it really outlines a lot of the most common oral surge procedures in like little bullet points, helps you. And then as a, and as a senior, when you, like you forget something, it's a quick little reference guide that, no, you're not gonna get every detail, but it is a good reminder. I think it's actually, I thought it was very useful.
0: I've heard great things about the Amos Reference Guide and I have it as well. And as you said, great, small, small booklets, yeah. so very portable, very easy to carry around. Now I have a recommendation, but this is mostly for programs that do head and neck. Obviously at McGill, we do head and neck oncology. Mm-hmm. So these two are going to be only for residents that are programs doing head and neck. So the first is if you're going to a program and you're going to be doing neck dissections or free flaps, it's going to be a zoo to you. You're not going to know what's going on. It's incredibly complex. It's probably some of the most complex surgery you'll ever see or do. So the two books you have to use are Raising of Microvascular Flaps. This is by Wolf. And it's one of the best books ever made because what it is, is it has like seven flaps. You pick the flap you're doing, let's say fibula flap. It tells you one paragraph history, one paragraph anatomy, step-by-step how to do the surgery, and then pictures and anatomy and how to do the surgery. It is perfect for a junior resident. You will know all the anatomy, you will know the steps, everything they're grilling on. You will know everything. And you can honestly read that flap in like 10 minutes because it's so compact. So that's great for flaps. And then for neck dissections, there's a book called Functional and Selective Neck Dissections by Gavilon. This is a great book that as a junior, you should read the chapter on the surgery, just how to do it because it gives you kind of the steps in the anatomy. Uh, you also want to read the intro chapter on the different types of neck dissections, so radical versus selective versus modified, all that different stuff. And as a senior, you unfortunately have to read this cover to cover. Neck sections will be the most complex surgery you do. It's still, I think when I graduated, the hardest surgery I ever saw and never truly felt comfortable with doing it just because there's so many complex anatomies and steps that you can really cause yeah. severe damage to the patient. But this is a great book, step by step, every single thing you need to know, pictures more dense it's not like a quick read unfortunately one but you have to put in time but you'll you'll get yeah. something out of it you, it's, it's the only resource you would have for, to read for that procedure so that those are the kind of two plugs i'd give for people that are in head and neck programs anything else you got? i, I will
1: add something it's not a it's not a textbook and i don't know if you've heard of it in mcgill but for us that we found very useful it's got toronto notes and so it's for when you go off service so i would say at the tail end or even at the beginning of your junior year when you're going to go off we do our off service in our year, second year before you head off. Toronto Notes are like the medicine program compiles all their notes on everything. And every couple of years they send a new, a new revision out. And we found that. So all the UFP residents find that very useful. And I know they've shared it with a bunch of the other schools in Canada. So that that is a very useful tool.
0: Another textbook I'm going to mention is Neville, obviously, for pathology. Now, Neville is not something you have to read cover to cover in one sitting. I found the best way to use it was let's say you knew you're going to the OR on Thursday and you're doing, you know, OKC as we just talked about, Dentiger cyst amyloblastoma grab neville read the section on amyloblastoma it's gonna take you three minutes to read it because every you know pathology only has like a little paragraph and it's like you know diagnosis histopathology treatment things like that um radiographic signs so i think it makes you look a lot better makes you understand the or a lot more and it's a really quick read so i don't think you would sit down necessarily no. and just read it but when you have a case coming up where you saw one in clinic just pull it up and re- read the
1: section on that like and on that note i think that's probably my f- biggest or first tip that I would give to both junior and senior residents on just how to deal with the year. So like, kind of like you said at the beginning, the biggest response or the biggest expectation I have from a junior resident when I was the chief resident is that you're hardworking, that you're on time and that you're just there to do anything that's asked for you. I don't need you to be super smart. I don't need you to be super talented with your hands because those are things you're going to learn, but you need to be prepared. So in that sense, if you know you're going to the tomorrow, read the charts before, know what the case is about, know what the surgery we're doing. And the same tip goes for the senior resident. You're now leading that OR. The staff expects you to know the case, to know the plan, to know the steps. So the same thing. Just do it in more detail than your junior resident would be doing it.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I know a lot of staff I've worked with have said, you know, operating is a privilege. You're not just, it's not like, oh, you're a senior, therefore you get cut half the case. They test you. you, You'll see from your seniors, they need to know the case in and out. And the staff will test them or they won't let them cut. I guess we'll do some rapid fire here. OMFS Secrets by Abu Bakr. You have to. Great textbook. You have to read it. Just read it cover to cover. It's like little things that you need to know and it'll really help you, especially for mock boards and things like that. Current therapy when you're a senior. No, for sure. Yeah, I use current, that a lot. Yeah. It's a senior book. So don't read it as a junior. You're going to be wasting your time. You have to understand how things work and all the basics before you read current therapy. That's a good senior one. You mentioned Peterson just now. Now, the one gripe I have with Peterson is, you know how when we were R1s, everyone says, get Peterson's, read it no. cover to cover. And that's what I did, but like it's so unrealistic. Yeah.
1: yeah. And honestly, some of the things and, are, are a little bit outdated. Like you don't need
0: to read cover to cover. And what I realized is it starts out in the first three chapters, like medicine and assessment, and it's text yeah. heavy. You just got into oral surgery. You want to read about yeah. oral surgery? It's brutal. So, my recommendation for Peterson's is you obviously have to get it, but I would say skip the medicine section, skip anesthesia. There's much better and resources. It's easier to that actually get to the point. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, I think it's good to read Peterson's Dental Alveolar trauma, TMJ, cosmetics, uh, cleft craniofacial. Yeah. I think all the other aspects, I don't think you need to read them. They're too dense and it's just going to discourage you from reading. So I would skip that. And finally, I don't know if you guys use the U of T. We're big on it. Uh, McGill is the Atlas book by Katamani. Did
1: oh, you use that so, at all? honestly, I didn't use it in my first two years, but it came pretty popular in when I was in my third and fourth year, to tell you the truth. And it was one of like our yeah. peripheral staff that, that kind of introduced it. And then everyone saved to get it by the end.
0: Yeah, because it's, so just so people that don't know, it's pretty much pick a procedure and it shows you in steps and great diagrams how diagrams. to do it. Diagrams, like great diagrams. Yeah, especially weird procedures that you might do as a one-off, yeah. and you're like, man, I haven't <laughs> seen that. Like for example, like an eminectomy, yeah. you know, or like a disc. I mean, we didn't do disc dislocation, but just like yeah. weird kind of you know one-off procedures that you might not see that common. You go to Atlas and you read about it. So those are kind of the textbook recommendation. I know it sounds like a lot, but it's. You'll realize a lot of these books are really easy to read. They're really quick. And the most thing is, as Oscar said, you're reading it over well, time. You're not just sitting there reading a textbook. You're chipping away at it. Keep chipping away at and it.
1: And like we're talking about here, you're reading, and these are not obviously all the books you should be reading, but those, it's a good it's a good percentage. You're reading this over the course of four to six years. Let's be clear here. You're not expected to read it in your first yep. month of residency. Exactly.
0: So that was just, you know, a segment we wanted to do just because we have a lot of new residents, a lot of new seniors coming in. We wanna welcome you to the profession. Uh, I think you guys have made a great choice and hopefully those tips will help you out for residency and reach out to us if you think we missed a textbook or a great resource or if you think it helped you. So that's it for the resident reminder section. Now let's jump into journal club. All right, let's jump into journal club now. And Oscar, I think we have a good article uh, this month. I was about to say that. It's
1: been my favorite one we've picked so far.
0: Yeah, I think it's yeah. a great article. Not only because the article, you know, it's well done, but also it stimulates a nice discussion and it's, relevant. And it's really going to show it's super yeah. relevant. So let's let's bring the audience in. We have does the use of cone beam computed tomography before mandibular third molar surgery impact treatment planning? Hugely relevant topic. This is by, by Kane et al. Usually, pre, usual pre-screening was done. This is an oral surgeon and an oral radiologist are the authors from Jordan. We love combination as long as someone in the combination is yeah, an oral exactly. surgeon. I think that's what we I think <laughs> yeah. that's our bias. I think what we realize is we need an oral surgeon involved and we like yeah, teams. Yeah. We kind of like that the oral radiologists here. I mean, I don't know if they're going to offer things that you wouldn't know as the oral surgeon, but it's their expertise. You can only benefit yeah. from You're not going to miss anything or you're not, it's not going to be worse with having them there. Exactly passes our pre screening checklist. We like that. So the research question for the study was as follows: Does the use of CBCT or OPG alter the treatment decision for mandibular third molar surgery? So it was a retrospective study evaluating a series of Pans and CBCT images in patients treated at the Jordan University Hospital. To be considered for the study, patients had to meet the following criteria: There had to be radiographic signs of proximity to the inferior alveolar nerve canal shown on a Pan and the availability of 3D imaging, aka CBCT. So Oscar, I'm gonna put you on the spot here. Do you remember the signs that a molar, an impacted third molar, is close to
1: the inferior alveolar nerve canal on a pen? I haven't been asked that in like forever. This is actually a good question. And honestly, it's a question I haven't been asked since my chief resident asked me. And for junior residents, you really should know this because you're gonna be asked this. You're expected to run the tooth clinic where you're taking out a bunch of wisdom teeth, so you should know. Things to look for, deviation of the of the mandibular cortex, deviation of the roots themselves, loss of that cortication of the canal, darkening of the roots. There's probably some other ones that I'm not remembering off the top of my head right now, but those are the main ones.
0: Deflection of the root, narrowing of canal. I think you named like the high yield ones, but yeah, this is pretty much the seven, the seven common reasons that we just said. You got to know them. And you
1: have to know them because it does, well, we'll get into the article, but it does, it should affect your treatment planning a little bit.
0: So you're looking at those signs and the primary outcome variable was the treatment decision recorded on a four-point scale. Would you observe? Would you extract under local? Would you extract under general? Or would you perform a coronectomy? I don't really care about the whole observe, local, general. All we cared about was- Three or four. Does it alter your decision? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are you gonna take it out? Yeah. <laughs> or are you, yeah, exactly. exactly. Oh, you're saying it. Cause I'm not doing it. I'm, a t- I'm, yeah. I'm a t- <laughs>
1: Local, why are we doing things with local? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. All your thing is, are we taking out three or are yeah, we taking out four? Yeah. The other thing they looked at was confidence in your selective treatment. So if you decide to do, for example, a coronectomy because you thought it was close to the nerve, how confident were you? very confident, confident, somewhat confident, not confident, or definitely not confident. So the study sample consisted of 132 third molars and 71 patients. I like the yeah. sample size. Yeah. I think People are going to say, well, wisdom teeth is so common. You know, wisdom teeth studies are usually the ones that have like thousands of molars and thousands of patients. But this is, you got to look at the PAN and the CBCT and then look at your treatment. So it's not as simple as just two surgeons, right? So
1: it's a bunch of work.
0: Exactly. So this was pretty interesting, Oscar. They found no statistically significant difference when you examine the two different imaging modalities. They either did extraction, whether it's sedation or GA, or they did observation. However, When they actually looked at the pan and CBCT, there was a statistically significant difference in what they saw on the imaging. So what they're saying here is pretty cool. It's that, you know, if you look at a pan, you show me a pan, you show me a CBCT, I'm gonna find different anatomic factors. I might realize, oh wow, the nerve is closer than I thought, farther away than I thought, it's buccal, it's lingual, but it didn't actually change their treatment decision. There was no statistically uh, significant difference in their treatment decision between coronectomy, extraction to local, or, or general or observations so they have a nice table here and just for example if you showed them the pan and they said they were going to do a coronectomy they said that about 16.7 percent of the time you then showed them the cbct and they still did a coronectomy 20 of those 22
1: times and does that does that so surprise it, you or not really
0: so this is this is kind of what i want to get into with you which is that first let's start out with this what is your guys approach? Do you first of all do you
1: have a CBCT machine in your residency in like in-house? So no, in-house we didn't have when I was in residency we didn't. If you ask me about practice, yeah, our practice has it at every office. We have an in-house CBCT.
0: So this is a great point right away cuz a lot of people don't have access to a CBCT. So when I was in R1 for example, no CBCT. I think when I became an R2 or R3, we got the CBCT machine. So by the time I was a senior, you know, we yeah, had CBCTs. Yeah.
1: Um, we only had so it in our in our faculty is, clinic, not our hospital clinics where we spent half the time. So this is a great question for you. So you're a resident, you have no CPCT. What was your protocol? So in our faculty, it was easy, right? Faculty clinic goes up, gets it done in radiology, comes back down, it's done. In our actual hospital clinic, realistically, it was, we more looked at the criteria that we talked about. If we thought that it was any one of those, and not just close, but it was significantly of any of those factors, then we gave the patient the option about one, either getting an external, so going to get somewhere else, going to get the CBCT across the street at our faculty or at the private clinic. Or if not, they would consent to potentially having a cornectomy done. And, and we, depending on the surgeon, because I don't know about you guys, but there are some surgeons that just will not do a cornectomy. Like they tell you, you're a surgeon, you got to take the tooth out. So depending on the staff that you were with, hmm. that, that also the, the, that would change that, that kind of plan that we would have.
0: I think what you just mentioned is a protocol that a lot of people without a CBCT or in private practice will use because it's logical. You look at it, no risk factors, go ahead. Risk factors, talk to the patient. You know, we might be able to get rid of it, might do a coronectomy, or you can go get this 3D scan and we'll know exactly where it is. So for us, pretty much having a CBCT in-house, our protocol is exactly the same as yours, except it's an easier thing because it's, listen, the tooth looks pretty close. This is a 2D picture of a 3D situation. We need to go get a scan, walk with me into the other room, take it, let I me mean, look at it, decision made. And like, Nerve is super close to the tooth, touching the tooth, proximal, you can do a cornectomy, you know, you can make in, a decision. In our
1: private practice, that is it, right? Patient comes in, you look at the pen, you don't even hesitate. You're like, if you were my family member, I'd get a three-dimensional scan. And you just, like you said, you walk them down the hall, they get the scan done, and then you look at it together.
0: And what's nice is the wisdom tooth and the nerve are so easy to show on a pen it's 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 an yeah. easy educational point for the patient. You know, if you if you show them the pen, you show the nerve, you say, look, it's close as the 2D picture, looks at the scan. And then if you even show them the scan and how it showed you exactly where it was, yeah. they love it. So I, I think it's an easy sell. Yeah, that's our protocol too. So one thing they say is that they kind of conclude we believe that the lack of evidence supporting the use of CBCT to reduce the post-operative inferior alveolar nerve injury after third molar surgery, and they believe in abiding by the Alara principle. Pop question number two for Oscar. Do you remember what the Alara principle is? As
1: low as reasonable possible or something like that? You're asking me all these like junior cool. questions.
0: You almost had it Alara though. It ends with an A and A so it can't be possible. But as low as reasonably. Yeah, so enjoyable. there we go. Like, oh
1: my God, my radiology teacher is going to be all upset.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, so
1: they oh, believe. Oh, yeah, yes. So hold in on, guys. I will say something. Wendell is currently studying for his boards. That's why he's doing all these pop questions. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask <laughs> yeah, him exactly. this next year. Let's see how much he remembers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm still at the exactly. peak of my powers. You have like you're a tremendous know, amount like a brain right time
0: Yeah, and considering the RCDC is going to be in like 10 years from now, I'll be at my peak <laughs> you're for just going to be on a
1: plateau of peakness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. So they believe in, you know, why do a CPCT if it's not really going to change your decision? Interestingly enough, in the same article, sorry, same issue of Jameis, they have. Literally an identical study from Hungary, we're not going to go through this one, but I just want to tell you that they had another study from Hungary that was identification of specific panoramic high-risk signs in impacted third molar cases in which the CBCT changes the treatment decision. And what's funny is they had a very similar study, but their results showed that the surgeon's confidence increased in their treatment decision after CBCT, resulting in fewer coronectomy decisions. So
1: I will say so, I agree with that more, to tell you the truth.
0: Because you find that, oh, the pen shows this is high risk. I would have considered a cornectomy. You get your CBCT and it's like, oh, wait, and, no, we're and all so good. I'll,
1: and I'll give you the bigger reason. So when you're a resident and most people who are listening to this are either oral surgeons or residents or in the profession or thinking of being in the profession, right? And so when you are a resident, you are not, as much as you are concerned and you're worried and you want to do the best care possible, you're not working under your license. Someone is overseeing you yeah. so for all your big surgeries, for even for your small surgeries, someone is overseeing you. So you are a little bit more gung-ho or a little bit more cowboyish, I will say, for sure. So when you're in there, you see a deep impacted wisdom tooth, you're like, I'm going to take it out. There's no question. I'm, I'm going to get it out. Once you go to private practice, there's no one you're working under. It's yours. It's your license. It's Dr. Dalmeo's license, Dr. Masquerana's license. And so when you look at something close, you are going to be a little bit more cautious to just say, oh, I want to take out this deeply impacted wisdom tooth. No, if, it's, if you think it's close to the nerve, you are much more likely to get that CBCT now. And when you get it, and you see that the nerve isn't close, then you're going to go in like you were before. You're like, oh, I'm going to take this tooth out because you're not worried about it. So I would agree much more with that to tell you the truth.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a nice modality to have now. You have now these CBCTs that have kind of a focal trough that you can just set like a, a little area we don't have that unfortunately deal. so if we do a cbct i mean we can say like for example mandible only and reduce yep. it, uh, the size but i can't say you know third quadrant only you know this wisdom to the area so it's like a focal kind of, a lot of people use yep. it for implants too you know i'm doing an upper incisors so i'm just taking encomium of that area we don't have that ability unfortunately with our machine to localize the trough to reduce radiation i don't know if you have that in your private practice we do we can
1: take some pretty small uh, cbcts that are pretty localized and honestly to tell you the truth standard of care kind of like we talked with orthognathic, everything is getting digital. So if you have that ability open to you, it, it's kind of hard to defend saying, oh, you know what? I thought the pan was clear enough and I didn't take the CBCT when it's close. Like, just why wouldn't you do it?
0: Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. So that was kind of our journal Club review. A nice article, I think, not only because it's relevant. We like that it's relevant and it stimulates discussion and something that we use pretty yeah. much every day in clinic. You're going to be seeing wisdom to the consults and making these decisions. So something to read up on
1: and, and a great article. And like, and, and again, this is more about consequences because in terms of like, are you going to damage the nerve? Are you not going to damage the nerve? But that discussion about CBCT changing treatment planning, I think it can involve a lot more things it can involve implant planning now. A lot of people are like, you will get your implant consult. You're getting an automatic CBCT. The guy that I work with now at cross-neural surgery, Omar, he trained in the States. Every implant consult that was coming in in the States was getting a PIN and, and was getting a CBCT. Right. So right right, Things off like the bat, like that was it. That was it. We're, if we're going to plan an implant, we're going to know exactly what's going on in the bone there.
0: Yeah, so I think it's going to be interesting to see how protocols change as more and more residencies and as more and more practices get CBCT. All right, that's it for Journal Club. Let's move on to recommendations. So, Oscar, this month, what do you have in recommendations for our listeners? So
1: I, Probably after the first two months, people thought I was just like a binge watcher of TV because that's all I did. And honestly, since... Since, I mean come on during during the actually shutdown everyone you know was I don't feel that TV. bad everyone was just watching TV but so now I'm I'm pretty much back to work not quite full time but pretty much full time and so my TV watching has gone down but the to add to that or to the excitement that I have to that is that sports is starting back up so I am a sports fanatic I will pretty much watch anything if there's a ref I'll watch darts if I have to if it's a sport I'm going to watch it and so now for triple yeah. 20 get a 16 in exactly, the darts exactly triple 20 what? <laughs> bullseye is bad get the you know i 20. was exaggerating but pretty much if it's a sport i'm gonna watch
0: by the way sorry this is a side note here but for everyone that watches darts isn't it ridiculous that they're not aiming for a bullseye yeah, it's crazy so for people everyone that thinks of a dartboard you think oh you obviously want to get a bullseye but a bullseye's 50 points but if you get a triple 20 you get yeah. 60 so like who designed this board no, no. So that's not even who designed the would board would be everyone it's was like trying to get a a bullseye? the rules I know they <laughs> should just increase the bullseye to 70 points and then it eliminates. I don't problem. even know how we divulged anyway, sorry, to, yeah, that to that dark, a, but yeah, that, that yeah. was a tangent. Um, but yeah.
1: but so now sports is starting back. So there's the potential basketball start. There's a potential hockey start. Like all the soccer, all the soccer leagues are going full tilt. So pretty much all I'm doing is as I'm taping any sport that I'm going to come home to watch it. So that's my recommendation right now. I'm done with shows. Not because I don't have, not because I don't want to watch. It's pretty much because I've watched everything else on TV. So now I'm going back to sports. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You ran out of material. My recommendation is going to take us in a different direction this month. So one thing that, you know, we just talked about in residency, you're reading tons of textbooks all the time. You get sick of reading. You hate reading because all you're doing is studying and memorizing. And it's just like, it's a chore. It's a job. So I used to read a lot of books growing up, like non, sorry, fiction books, you know, mystery Uh novels, adventure novels, stuff like that. And then as soon as I started dental school and, and surgery, I stopped reading because you're reading textbooks. And you have this negative association of yeah, reading yeah. a book, but I found near, you know, I'd say the end of my fifth year, I kind of wanted to start reading again, you know, maybe like a chapter a day before bed or something like that. So I started just, you know, picking up from the library or Amazon fiction books. So once again, just adventure, murder, mystery, stuff like that. And if you get a good book, it's extremely, entertaining. it's just as addicting as a TV show and you actually look forward to reading. You, you want to know what's going to happen. You want to solve the mystery. So I end up reading a ton of books. So the recommendation I have for people is to maybe start trying to read again, but non-academic yeah. stuff. Pick up a fiction novel, even if it's non-fiction, something that's going to stimulate you. And you're going to realize quickly that you love it because you're reading and you have no pressure to memorize what so you're reading. I
1: think that's an actual amazing recommendation in the sense that we all sometimes get so involved in residency we think it is the entire world and you know what for four to six years maybe it is but you have to realize that you are an entire person oral surgery is one part and it's going to be a big part of your life because you've committed so much of it to this specialty and it's an amazing specialty but yeah stimulate other parts of your life so i think that's an actual that's an amazing recommendation wendell
0: perfect so that brings us to the end of teeth and titanium episode three thanks again for everyone supporting and listening once again if you want to be featured on the show if you have a recommendation for journal club or for the resident reminder section or if you just want to say hi or give us some feedback reach out to us at teeth omfs at gmail.com we would love to hear from you we'd love to actually read a fan mail on the that's show that's a good idea I think that's that'd be cool. a good idea send us some email send us some feedback we'd love to hear from you and hope you guys have a great month see you next time